Chapter Two of the Life Everlasting by Marie Corelli. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Fairy Ship. I was introduced that evening at dinner to Mr. Harland's physician and also to his private secretary. I was not greatly prepossessed in favor of either of these gentlemen. Dr. Braille was a dark, slim, clean-shaven man of middle age, with expressionless brown eyes and sleek black hair, which was carefully brushed and parted down the middle. He was quiet and self-contained in manner, and yet I thought I could see that he was fully alive to the advantages of his position as traveling medical adviser to an American millionaire. I have not mentioned till now that Morton Harland was an American. I was always rather in the habit of forgetting the fact, as he had long ago forsworn his nationality, and had naturalized himself as a British subject. But he had made his vast fortune in America, and was still the controlling magnet of many large financial interests in the States. He was, however, much more English than American, for he had been educated at Oxford, and as a young man had been always associated with English society and English ways. He had married an English wife, who died when their first child, his daughter, was born, and he was wont to set down all Miss Catherine's mopish languors to a delicacy inherited from her mother, and to a lack of a mother's care in childhood. In my opinion, Catherine was robust enough, but it was evident that from a very early age she had been given her own way to the fullest extent and had been so accustomed to have every little ailment exaggerated and made the most of, that she had grown to believe health of body and mind as well-nigh impossible to the human being. Dr. Braille, I soon perceived, lent himself to this attitude, and I did not like the covert gleam of his mahogany-colored eyes as he glanced rapidly from father to daughter in the pauses of conversation watching them as narrowly as a cat might watch a couple of unwary mice. The secretary, Mr. Swinton, was a pale, precise-looking young man, with a somewhat servile demeanor, under which he concealed an inordinately good opinion of himself. His ideas were centered in and bounded by the art of stenography. He was an adept in shorthand and typewriting could jot down, I forget how many crowds of jostling words a minute, and never made a mistake. He was a clockwork model of punctuality and dispatch, of respectfulness and obedience. But he was no more than a machine. He could not be moved to a spontaneous utterance, or a spontaneous smile, unless both smile and utterance were the result of some pleasantness affecting himself. Neither Dr. Braille nor Mr. Swinton were men whom one could positively like or dislike. They simply had the power of creating an atmosphere in which my spirit found itself swimming like a goldfish in a bowl, wondering how it got in and how it could get out. As I sat rather silently at table, I felt, rather than saw, Dr. Braille regarding me with a kind of perplexed curiosity. I was as fully aware of his sensations as of my own. I knew that my presence irritated him, though he was not clever enough to explain even to himself 
the cause of his irritation. So far as Mr. Swinton was concerned, he was comfortably wrapped up in a pachydermatous hide of self-appreciation, so that he thought nothing about me one way or the other, except as a guest of his patrons, and one, therefore, to whom he was bound to be civil. But with Dr. Braille it was otherwise. I was a puzzle to him, and, after a brief study of me, an annoyance. He forced himself into conversation with me, however, and we interchanged a few remarks on the weather and on the various beauties of the coast along which we had been sailing all day. "'I see that you care very much for fine scenery,' he said. "'Few women do.' "'Really?' and I smiled. "'Is admiration of the beautiful a special privilege of men only?' "'It should be,' he answered, with a little bow. "'We are the admirers of your sex.' I made no answer. Mr. Harland looked at me with a somewhat quizzical air. "'You are not a believer in compliments,' he said. "'Was it a compliment?' I asked, laughingly. "'I'm afraid I'm very dense. I did not see that it was meant as one.' Dr. Braille's dark brows drew together in a slight frown. With that expression on his face, he looked very much like an Italian poisoner of old time the kind of man whom Caesar Borgia might have employed to give the happy dispatch to his enemies by some sure and undiscoverable means known only to intricate chemistry. Presently, Mr. Harland spoke again, while he peeled a pear slowly and delicately with a deft movement of his fruit-knife that suggested cruelty and the flaying alive of some sentient thing. "'Our little friend is of a rather strange disposition,' he observed. "'She has the indifference of an old-world philosopher "'to the sayings of speeches that are merely socially agreeable. "'She is ardent in soul, but suspicious in mind. "'She imagines that a pleasant word may often be used "'to cover a treacherous action. "'And if a man is as rude and blunt as myself, for example, "'she prefers that he should be rude and blunt,' rather than that he should attempt to conceal his roughness by an amiability which it is not his nature to feel. Here he looked up at me from the careful scrutiny of his nearly flayed pair. Isn't that so? Certainly, I answered, but that's not a strange or original attitude of mind. The corners of his ugly mouth curled satirically. Pardon me, dear lady, it is the normal and strictly reasonable attitude of the healthy human pygmy is that it should accept as gospel all that it is told of a nature soothing and agreeable to itself it should believe among other things that it is a very precious pygmy among natural forces destined to be immortal and to share with divine intelligence the privileges of heaven put out by the merest trifle troubled by a spasm driven almost to howling by a toothache, and generally helpless in all very aggravated adverse circumstances, it should still console itself with the idea that its being, its proportions and perfections, are superb enough to draw down deity into a human shape as a creature of human necessities, in order that it, the pygmy, should claim kinship with the divine now and forever, 
What gorgeous blasphemy in such a scheme! What magnificent arrogance! I was silent, but I could almost hear my heart beating with suppressed emotion. I knew Morton Harland was an atheist. So far as atheism is possible, to any creature born of spirit as well as matter, but I did not think he would air his opinion so openly and at once before me the first evening of my stay on board his yacht. I saw, however, that he spoke in this way, hoping to move me to an answering argument for the amusement of himself and the other two men present, and therefore I did what was incumbent upon me to do in such a situation, held my peace. Dr. Braille watched me curiously and poor Catherine Harland turned her plaintive eyes upon me full of alarm. She had learned to dread her father's fondness for starting topics which led to religious discussions of a somewhat heated nature. But as I did not speak, Mr. Harland was placed in the embarrassing position of a person propounding a theory which no one shows any eagerness to accept or to deny, and looking slightly confused, he went on in a lighter and more casual way. I had a friend once at Oxford, a wonderful fellow, full of strange dreams and occult fancies. He was one of those who believed in the divine half of man. He used to study curious old books and manuscripts till long past midnight, and never seemed tired. His father had lived by choice in some desert corner of Egypt for forty years, and in Egypt this boy had been born, of his mother he never spoke. His father died suddenly and left him a large fortune under trustees till he came of age, with instructions that he was to be taken to England and educated at Oxford, and that when he came into possession of his money he was to be left free to do as he liked with it. I met him when he was almost halfway through his university course. I was only two or three years his senior but he always looked much younger than I, and he was, as we all said, uncanny, as uncanny as our little friend, here indicating me by a nod of his head and a smile which was meant to be kindly. He never practiced or trained for anything, and yet all things came easily to him. He was as magnificent in his sports as he was in his studies, and I remember, how well I remember it, that there came a time at last when we all grew afraid of him. If we saw him coming along the high, we avoided him. He had something of terror as well as admiration for us. And though I was of his college and constantly thrown into association with him, I soon became infected with the general scare. One night he stopped me in the quadrangle where he had his rooms. Here Mr. Harland broke off suddenly. I'm boring you, he said. I really have no business to inflict the recollections of my youth upon you. Dr. Braille's brown eyes showed a glistening animal interest. Pray go on, he urged. It sounds like the chapter of a romance. I'm not a believer in romance, said Mr. Harland grimly. Facts are enough in themselves without any embroidered additions. This fellow was a fact a healthy, strong, energetic, living fact. He stopped me in the quadrangle, as I tell you, and he laid his hand on my shoulder. I shrank from his touch, and had a restless desire to get away from him. 
"'What's the matter with you, Harland?' he said in a grave, musical voice that was peculiarly his own. "'You seem afraid of me. If you are, the fault is in yourself, not in me.' I shuffled my feet about on the stone pavement, not knowing what to say. Then I stammered out the foolish excuses young men make when they find themselves in an awkward corner. He listened to my stammering remarks about the other fellows with attentive patience. Then he took his hand from my shoulder with a quick, decisive movement. "'Look here, Harland,' he said. "'You are taking up all the conventions and traditions with which our poor old alma mater is encrusted and sticking them over you like burrs. They'll cling, remember. It's a pity you choose this way of going.' I'm starting at the farther end, where Oxford leaves off and life begins. I suppose I stared, for he went on. I mean life that goes forward, not life that goes backward, picking up the stale crumbs fallen from centuries that have finished their banquet and passed on. There, I won't detain you. We shall not meet often, but don't forget what I have said, that if you are afraid of me, or of any other man, or of any existing thing, the fault is in yourself, not in the persons or objects you fear. "'I don't see it,' I blurted out angrily. "'What of the other fellows? They think you're queer.' He laughed. "'Bless the other fellows,' he said. "'They're with you in the same boat. They think me queer because they are queer, that is, out of line, themselves.' I was irritated by his easy indifference and asked him what he meant by out of line. "'Suppose you see a beautiful garden harmoniously planned,' he said, still smiling. "'And some clumsy fellow comes along and puts a crooked pigsty up among the flower beds. "'You would call that out of line, wouldn't you? "'Unsuitable, to say the least of it.' "'Oh,' I said hotly, "'so you consider me and my friends crooked pigsties in your landscape?' "'He made me a gay, half-apologetic gesture.' "'Something of the type, dear boy,' he said. "'But don't worry. The crooked pigsty is always the most popular kind of building in the world you will live in.' With that he bade me good night and went. I was very angry with him, for I was a conceited youth, and thought myself and my particular associates the very cream of Oxford. But he took all the highest honours that year, and when he finally left the university he vanished, so to speak in a blaze of intellectual glory. I have never seen him again, and never heard of him, and so I suppose his studies led him nowhere. He must be an elderly man now. He may be lame, blind, lunatic, or what is more probable still, he may be dead, and I don't know why I think of him, except that his theories were much the same as those of our little friend. Again indicating me by a nod, he never cared for agreeable speeches, always rather mistrusted social conventions, and believed in a higher life after death. Or a lower, I put in quietly. Ah, yes, there must be a downgrade, of course, if there is an up. The two would be part of each other's existence. But as I accept neither, the point does not matter. I looked at him, and I suppose my looks expressed wonder, or pity, or both for he averted his glance from mine. "'You are something of a spiritualist, I believe,' said Dr. Braille, 
lifting his hard eyes from the scrutiny of the tablecloth and fixing them upon me. Not at all, I answered at once and with emphasis. That is, if you mean by the term spiritualist, a credulous person who believes in mediumistic trickery, automatic writing, and the like, that is sheer nonsense and self-deception. Several experienced scientists give these matters considerable attention, suggested Mr. Swinton primly. I smiled. Science, like everything else, has its borderland, I said, from which the brain can easily slip off into chaos. The most approved scientific professors are liable to this dire end of their speculations. They forget that in order to understand the infinite, they must first be sure of the infinite in themselves. You speak like an oracle, fair lady, said Mr. Harland, but despite your sage utterances, man remains as finite as ever. If he chooses the finite state, certainly he does, I answered. He is always what he elects to be. Mr. Harland seemed desirous of continuing the argument, but I would say no more. The topic was too serious and sacred with me to allow it to be lightly discussed by persons whose attitude of mind was distinctly opposed and antipathetic to all things beyond the merely mundane. After dinner, Miss Catherine professed herself to be suffering from neuralgia, and gathering up her shawls and wraps, asked me to excuse her for going to bed early. I bade her good night, and leaving my host and the two other men to their smoke, I went up on deck. We were anchored off Mull, and against a starlit sky of exceptional clearness, the dark mountains of Morven were outlined with a softness as of black velvet. The yacht rested on perfectly calm waters, shining like polished steel, and the warm stillness of the summer night was deliciously soothing and restful. Our captain and one or two of the sailors were about on duty, and I sat in the stern of the vessel, looking up into the glorious heavens. The tapering bowsprit of the Diana pointed aloft, as it were, into a woven web of stars, and I lost myself in imaginary flight among those glittering, unknown worlds, oblivious of my material surroundings, and forgetting that despite the splendid evidences of a governing intelligence in the beauty and order of the universe spread about them every day, my companions in the journey of pleasure we were undertaking together were actually destitute of all faith in God, and had less perception of the existing divine than the humblest plant may possess that instinctively forces its way upward to the light. I did not think of this. It was no use thinking about it, as I could not better the position, but I found myself curiously considering the story Mr. Harland had told about his college friend at Oxford. I tried to picture his face and figure, till presently it seemed as if I saw him. Indeed, I could have sworn that a man's shadowy form stood immediately in front of me, bending upon me a searching glance from eyes that were strangely familiar. Startled at this wraith of my own fancy, I half rose from my chair, then sank back again with a laugh at my imagination's too vivid power of portrayal. A figure did certainly present itself, 
but one of sufficient bulk to convince me of its substantiality. This was the captain of the Diana, a cheery-looking personage of a thoroughly nautical type, who, approaching me, lifted his cap and said, "'That's a wonderfully fine yacht that has just dropped anchor behind us. She's illuminated, too. Have you seen her?' "'No,' I answered, and turned in the direction he indicated. An involuntary exclamation escaped me. There, about half a mile to our rear, floated a schooner of exquisite proportions and fairy-like grace, outlined from stem to stern by delicate borderings of electric light, as though decorated for some great festival, and making quite a glittering spectacle in the darkness of the deepening night. We could see active figures at work on deck. The sails were dropped and quickly furled, but the quivering radiance remained running up every tapering mast and spar, so that the whole vessel seemed drawn on the dusky air with pencil points of fire. I stood up, gazing at the wonderful sight in silent amazement and admiration, with the captain beside me, and it was he who first spoke. "'I can't make her out,' he said perplexedly. We never heard a sound, except just when she dropped anchor, and that was almost noiseless. How she came round the point yonder so suddenly is a mystery. I was keeping a sharp lookout, too. Surely she's very large for a sailing vessel, I queried. The largest I've ever seen, he replied. But how did she sail? That's what I want to know. He looked so puzzled that I laughed. Well, I suppose in the usual way. I said, with sails. Aye, that's all very well. And he glanced at me with a compassionate air, as at one who knew nothing about seafaring. But sails must have wind, and there hasn't been a capful all the afternoon or evening. Yet she came in with crowded canvas, full out, as if there was a regular southwester, and found her anchorage as easy as you please. All in a minute, too. If there was a wind, it wasn't a wind belonging to this world. Wouldn't Mr. Harland perhaps like to see her? I took the hint and ran down into the saloon, which by this time was full of the stifling odors of smoke and whiskey. Mr. Harland was there, drinking and talking somewhat excitedly with Dr. Braille, while his secretary listened and looked on. I explained why I had ventured to interrupt their conversation, and they accompanied me up on deck. The strange yacht looked more bewilderingly brilliant than ever, the heavens having somewhat clouded over, and as we all, the captain included, leaned over our own deck-rail and gazed at her shining outlines, we heard the sound of delicious music and singing floating across the quiet sea. "'Some millionaire's toy,' said Mr. Harland. "'She's superbly built. Sailing vessels are always more elegant than steam.' though not half so useful. I expect she'll lie becalmed here for a day or two. It's a wonder she's got round here at all, said the captain. There wasn't any wind to bring her. Mr. Harland looked amused. There must have been some wind, Derrick, he answered. Only it wasn't boisterous enough for a hearty salt like you to feel it. There wasn't a breath, declared Derrick firmly. Not enough to blow a baby's curl. "'Then how did she get here?' asked Dr. Braille. Captain Derrick's lifted eyebrows expressed his inability to solve the enigma. 
I said just now if there was a wind, it wasn't a wind belonging to this world. Mr. Harland turned upon him quickly. Well, there are no winds belonging to other worlds that will ever disturb our atmosphere, he said. Come, come, Derek, you don't think that yacht is a ghost, do you? A sort of flying Dutchman specter? Captain Derek smiled broadly. No, sir, I don't. There's flesh and blood aboard. I've seen the men hauling down canvas, and I know that. But the way she sailed in bothers me. "'All that electric light is rather ostentatious,' said Dr. Braille. "'I suppose the owner wants to advertise his riches.' "'That doesn't follow,' said Mr. Harland, with some sharpness. "'I grant you we live in an advertising age, "'but I don't fancy the owner of that vessel is a pill or a plaster or even a special tea. "'He may want to amuse himself. "'It may be the birthday of his wife or one of his children.' There may be several inoffensive reasons for his lighting up, and he may think no more of advertisement than you or I. That's true, assented Dr. Braille, with a quick concession to his patron's humor. But people nowadays do so many queer things for mere notoriety's sake that it is barely possible to avoid suspecting them. They will even kill themselves in order to be talked about. Fortunately, they don't hear what's said of them, returned Mr. Harland, or they might alter their minds and remain alive. It's hardly worth while to hang yourself in order to be called a fool. While this talk went on, I remained silent, watching the illuminated schooner with absorbed fascination. Suddenly, while I still gazed upon her, every spark with which she was, as it were, bejeweled, went out, and only the ordinary lamps common to the watches of the night on board a vessel at anchorage burned dimly here and there like red winking eyes for the rest she was barely visible save by an indistinct tracery of blurred black lines the swiftness with which her brilliancy had been eclipsed startled us all and drew from captain derrick that remark that it was rather queer what pantomimists call a quick change said Mr. Harland, with a laugh. The show is over for tonight. Let us turn in. Tomorrow morning we'll try and make acquaintance with the stranger, and find out, for Captain Derrick's comfort, how she managed to sail without wind. We bade each other good night, then, and descended to our several quarters. When I found myself alone in the luxurious stateroom suite allotted to me, the first thing I did was to open one of the portholes and listen to the music which still came floating from the mysterious yacht. It was a music full of haunting sweetness and rhythmic melody, and I was not sure whether it was evolved from stringed instruments or singing voices. By climbing up on the sofa in my sitting-room, I could look out through the porthole on the near sea, rippling close to me and bringing, as I fancied, with every ripple, a new cadence, a tenderer snatch of tune. A subtle scent was on the salt air, as of roses mingled with the freshness of the scarcely moving waters. It came, I thought, from the beautiful blossoms which so lavishly adorned my rooms. I could not see the yacht from my point of observation, but I could hear the music she had on board, and that was enough for immediate delight. Leaving the porthole open, I lay down on the sofa immediately beneath it, 
and composed myself to listen. The soft breath of the sea blew on my cheeks, and with every breath the delicate vibrations of appealing harmony rose and fell. It was as if these enchanting sounds were being played or sung for me alone. In a delicious languor I drowsed, as it were, with my eyes open, losing myself in a labyrinth of happy dreams and fancies which came to me unbidden, till presently the music died softly away like a retreating wave and ceased altogether. I waited a few minutes, listening breathlessly, lest it should begin again and I lose some note of it. Then, hearing no more, I softly closed the porthole and drew the curtain. I did this with an odd reluctance, feeling somehow that I had shut out a friend, and I half apologized to this vague sentiment by reminding myself of the lateness of the hour. It was nearly midnight. I had intended writing to Francesca, but I was now disinclined for anything but rest. The music which had so entranced me throbbed still in my ears, and made my heart beat with a quick sense of joy, and a warm atmosphere of peace and comfort came over me, when at last I lay down in my luxurious bed and slipped away into the land of sleep. Ah, what a land it is, that magic land of sleep, a land shadowing with wings, where, amid many shifting and shimmering wonders of darkness and light, the palace of vision stands uplifted, stately and beautiful, with golden doors set open to the wanderer. I made my entrance there that night, often and often as I had been within its enchanted precincts before, there were a million halls of marvel as yet unvisited, and among these I found myself, under a dome which seemed of purest crystal lit with fire, listening to one invisible who, speaking as from a great height, discoursed to me of love. End of chapter 2